Let's pray together. O righteous Father, we thank you for answering the prayer of Jesus, that we would be one with each other and with believers across time past, present, and future. As we think back through history, we think of Ruth and we rejoice with her as we hear of your faithfulness to redeem her into your people, the same people that we have been redeemed into. And then as we think in the New Testament, we long to hear that there was repentance in the Corinthian church, the same repentance that we long for in our lives, the mark of a heart made new by the Holy Spirit. And even on a day like today where we aren't all gathered into one place, we are still gathered into one family. And all of our anticipation is aimed at that day when we are in one place, with all of the redeemed at the foot of your throne, singing your praises forever. And until then, Lord, we ask for protection from and forgiveness of the sin of division. The world and our flesh are warring with you, stirring up envy and jealousy and all kinds of strife between us. Help us to resist factions and Holy Spirit convict us where we have placed ourselves, our egos, or our own desires ahead of our brothers and sisters. Break us where we have thought more highly of ourselves than we should. Spirit, help us follow the example of our Lord Jesus, that we would love one another the way that we have been loved by you. From this same unity, we pray for the Branch Church in Corvallis. We pray that the congregation would marvel at your redemptive work this morning, and that Pastor Doug's words would be guided by you as they study and recount all of your wondrous deeds. We also pray for Trinity Church in Portland. We pray that Ta Pastor Thomas Terry would minister through the word and prayer along with the other pastors that you have given that church. We pray that congregation and their gathering would be marked by praise and thanksgiving. Help them to continue to grow in love for one another and knowledge of your love for them. Bind those gatherings together with the same unity that we pray for in our church today. Lord, for ourselves, that we ask that we would grow in a true unity, not a shallow unity based on shared earthly interests or stages of life, but instead let our shared background of being sinners, unable to save ourselves, but saved by grace, trusting in the propitiatory death of our Messiah, have it bind us together with a spiritual love, a supernatural love, as we wait together for your return, Jesus where you will judge all the world righteously and bring your kingdom to fulfillment. Holy Spirit, use the preaching of the word today to bring about all your good purposes as we humbly submit to your work in our lives. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Ryan. You can have a seat and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 10. My senior year of high school, just partway into league play in basketball, about this same time of year, an intense pain started to develop in my ankle. You see, the summer before my senior year, I trained at an incredibly high level 
in anticipation of my last year of high school basketball. My motivation to win state and be one of the best in the state drove me to put in every last ounce of energy I could to my training. Unfortunately, I overdid it. I know for those of you that know me, that's a shock. The pain had come to such a point that I couldn't even run up and down the court, and so in this game uh, that day, my parents and my coach came to me and said, you can't keep doing this, you have to go to the doctor. Imaging was done, and my mom and I went in to see the doctor there in Northwest Portland, and the memory of that moment is etched into my mind's eye as I sat on the examination table waiting for the doctor to tell me about the future of my basketball career. Unfortunately, it was not the news that I wanted. I would need to be in a cast for the rest of the season. My senior year was done. You see, I had developed a very small stress fracture, hardly even intelligible on the x-ray, at the bottom of my tibia where it connected to my ankle. And if you're not familiar with stress fractures, they are tiny cracks in the bone. The bone was still, for the most part, whole, but a small schism had started to develop from overuse and lack of rest. I said to the doctor, no big deal, right? I can keep playing. But the doctor informed me that to keep playing would make the schism, the break, the fracture, larger and bring it to a point where the bone might not heal at all. The result would be that I would walk with a considerable, considerable limp the rest of my life if I chose to continue playing. And so at that moment, my high school career came to a crashing halt, and that tiny crack in my shin bone caused damage that, honestly, grieves me to this day. On days like today where it's cold, I can still feel it, and I know where it is. When something is intended to be whole, the sign of a crack or a tear or a schism developing is a very bad thing, especially when you're talking about the human body, right? Oh, no big deal. There's just a tear there. That's not what we say. Ask anyone in the church who's ever had an injury. The human body was created to be whole, and when it is not, it is a disturbing reality that usually brings sadness and pain. This idea of something formed whole but broken is the story of sin, isn't it? All of creation was made to be whole in its connection to itself and its connection to the creator, but at the fall, the universe metaphorically cracked. A great schism was created between the creator and his creation. Something miraculous would need to occur to heal that break and bring reconciliation and wholeness once again. And this is the background for the gospel. The good news of the historical event of Jesus' death in our place, his resurrection from the grave, and his ascension to the throne of the kingdom of heaven. The salvific work of the Trinity performed in Christ achieved a miraculous healing in multiple ways. It first reconciled God with his created world. Secondly, it reconciled each of his chosen people with him. And third, it reconciled his chosen people with each other, and that's the one we're still working out. So Christ's salvific work wasn't just effective in the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to the Father. Obviously, that's a big deal, amen? Christ's salvific work was also effective for drawing together the church and making a people, a kingdom, a covenant community where there was previously none. And friends, this is not symbolic only, it's material, it's actual, it's reality. And this is the effect of the historical events that are referred to as the gospel. We see this 
trend throughout Scripture of God making whole and then Satan trying to divide and destroy. Take, for example, the covenant of marriage. God takes two people who are separated and joins them together by his Holy Spirit. And what does Jesus say about that joining together in wholeness? He says this in Mark 10, 9, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is why I will say to people who are married in a secular fashion, well, in a spiritual fashion, you're not actually married because it's God who's done the work of joining together. So you, not believing in God, you're not actually getting married. You're getting joined together for tax purposes, which is another form of, of joining together, but it's not marriage as declared in the word. In the gospel, God has done a work that's similar to this idea of joining together a husband and wife. Now I know, I know, many people say to me, they're not the same covenant. Yes, but they are to be images of each other. That's why Paul uses them. And so similarly, as he does with the husband and wife, God has done a work through the cross in drawing together all of God's people. Now our first reading talked about the declaration of the good news as having the effect of drawing together the people of God into the arms of our shepherd. He gathers them together, it says in Isaiah. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. I would say that the same thing applies. And Christ, as the intercessory priest, prayed on behalf of all who are in him, all who he is joining together by his spirit, that they would be one, even as Christ is one with the Father. And yet, what is the reality of what is commonly known as the church? Separation, division, tribalism, schisms, infighting, they all exist and even could be seen as rampant, especially in our day where terms like church shopping have become common descriptors of what it is to attend a church. And there are thousands of independent denominations. But this is not new. The local church at Corinth was in a similar category. Paul is writing to address schisms that had begun to develop within the church based upon a hierarchy of wealth and connection, status, and supposed spiritual prowess. And we will get into these topics in great detail as we go through the letter, but today, we simply must understand that Paul was writing this letter because he had caught wind of these divisions and wanted to correct them. And like Christ's words on the covenant of marriage, Paul is similarly going to tell the local church, brothers and sisters, what God has joined together, in this case, by the gospel, let not man separate. As we read, we will begin to hear Paul's heartbreak, for it was Paul who planted this church and who is now receiving word that it has a fracture in it. And so even though he has the right to command them to cease what they're doing, he will instead appeal to that which joins them together. He will appeal to the gospel. In essence, Paul will deliver a plea to agree with the gospel. A plea to agree with the gospel. So let's hear what Paul has to say and read from our text together in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17 this morning. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. In the first verse, we see an appeal for unity in Christ. An appeal for unity in Christ. Very simply, very obviously, an appeal for unity in Christ. In this one verse, Paul is setting out his purpose, actually, for the entirety of the letter. His proposition, if you will, for the Corinthian church is right here in verse 10. As we just noted, he has the authority to command, but Paul does not use his apostolic status, nor his place as the founder of the church, nor his ability as an orator, which we will focus on here in a few sections. He simply appeals to them. He appeals to what is common among them because they have all been saved, or at least he's going to appeal to them until that is proven differently. And this is an appeal based on two main points. Primarily, he makes the appeal, notice, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we've discussed at length on many other occasions, this was not the proper name of Jesus of Nazareth, but it was a title that carries with it immense meaning. The word Lord means one to whom all servants would submit, one who has authority over their subjects. And this authority is not one that makes appeals, but one that commands. And so Paul is very gently reminding them who is actually the authority over the church at Corinth, and therefore, whose authority is transferred to Paul as a messenger or emissary. The word Christ in the Greek, the word Christos, it's parallel with the Hebrew word Messiah. We've seen this many times before. And this is the anointed king who has formed an inaugurated kingdom of heaven here on earth. And so Paul is appealing using this title, saying, Christ is the one who's actually asking this of you, not me. Secondly, Paul makes the appeal based upon the relationship he has with those in the local church. Notice that he calls them brothers. And this is not just like it's thrown around today. What's up, brah? Not that kind of brah. But this is brothers and sisters. The Greek word here, adelphoi, is a masculine plural. That, in the Greek, is meant to innately include the women of the church. So you can accurately read it as Paul saying, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the family of Christ. It's kind of like parents when you remind your children who are siblings that they're only ever going to have those siblings. And they need to treat them as such. They need to remember that they're part of a family. Paul is intentionally making this familial connection known because it's been created in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. They would not be brothers and sisters otherwise. Friends, think about in this small church how many people you know that you love dearly, you would lay your life down for, but if it had to do with just simply secular affinity or connection, you would never, ever hang out because you're just very different people. And that's not a value judgment. It's just the reality of what is, right? Some of us love board games. Others do not, myself. But why do I do board games? Because I love to hang out with those of you that do. We do things in order to show that we're family, that we're brothers and sisters, and we love each other dearly. Amen? We have to be reminded of this because it's the gospel that has done this work. And so he's calling them to remember that the gospel 
in which they have believed has resulted in them being brothers and sisters. But do you recall what it is that shows that we are brothers and sisters? Christ himself noted this in his words in Matthew 12, 50. He said, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is not just a status that's given to us out of nothing, right? Well, I'm a Christian, so therefore I'm your brother or sister. No, we have to pay attention. We have to reason together, and we have to understand, are we all submitted to the Lord who has saved us? Therefore, if we are, then we are brothers and sisters. My question to us as a church is, do you see yourself as such? Do you see the people sitting around you today or the people that are there online that are usually with us, do you see yourselves as brothers and sisters? For Christ's blood has made you so. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. So is Paul arguing for unity, for unity's sake here? Is Paul part of the movement of the gospel of nice? Is he just saying, just agree and get along because that is the way of Jesus? Not at all. They too are to agree in something in particular. They, too, they are to agree in Christ as their Lord. They are to agree that he is their authority and they are all together to submit to him. That's why he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we will see in a moment, the divisions that were caused among the people of the church were divisions based upon alliances and tribalism between fellow members, depending upon which leader with whom it was with whom they felt most aligned. It was about cliques of status. So what they were to agree upon was that Christ was to be their leader, their pastor, their elder, and their head. It is from his authority and activity that the church is built and supplied. And this keeps the body very healthy because jealousy is no longer a part of it. Well, you get to hang out with this leader, but I don't ever get to hang out with this leader. Well, leaders are human too, and they don't have all the time in the world. And so relationships that naturally form in the church and are still loving, but some of you are going to be tighter and closer with others in the church, and that's natural because we're all finite and human and not everyone is going to be everyone else's best friend. But the idea that Christ is our Lord and we are joined together and come together in the gathering on Sundays and as we can throughout the rest of the year, we attempt to make sure that we're loving one another, then the church is healthy and understands that there are no cliques, there are no statuses of importance of who hangs out based upon who hangs out with who. And Paul points this idea out in his letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, through 23. He shows this idea of the church being gathered together under one head, Christ himself, and therefore the entire body is formed in wholeness. He says in Ephesians 1, through 23, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And from this ultimate authority, the members of the local church were to then be united in his rule. And this is why it is the job of the church to baptize new disciples and teach them to obey all that Christ commanded. From Christ's commands and example, we are to regulate our own thinking and behavior, and this will unify us. And this was Paul's next point, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
Paul uses similar language in the letter to the church at Philippi. In fact, he uses it in multiple letters. He says in the church at Philippi, this is from chapter 2, verse 2, and then verses 5 through 8. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Notice the similar wording here. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He repeats himself. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so every single one of us is in this movement of time where the Lord is sanctifying us and changing us so that we are slowly but surely figuring out what it is to be selfless instead of selfish and laying our lives down for one another, having the same mind as our authority, our King, our Savior, our friend, Jesus Christ. And so Christ, through Paul, is asking the church to conform themselves to the model and mind and therefore rule that he has presented, the Christian mindset. Now this is not asking for a model of uniformity within the church that denies differences of background or culture or personality differences or differences in spiritual gifts. For Paul will talk about that to a great extent in later chapters, especially chapter 12. He will actually rejoice in the fact that the church is diverse in a number of ways. But this is dealing with uniformity in terms of who our ultimate head and authority is. And friends, it is not me and it is not you. It is Christ. He alone is the one that we follow. And when we truly grasp that and we can lay our lives down and our opinions and our emotions at the foot of the cross and understand that he is our king, suddenly, automatically, we're unified. It's amazing how that works. And this is still greatly needed today, isn't it? For in our day today, it's almost a badge of honor when we say that we disagree in today's culture. What a paradox it is when we are called by our society to agree on one thing, and that one thing is that we all should disagree and yet honor one another's desire to be Lord. They're still asking for agreement, but it's an agreeing to let you be Lord just like I want to be Lord. This is the nature of the tolerance movement, isn't it? But it was Christ himself who told us that a house divided cannot stand. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And so it should be the goal of every church and every Christian to bring ourselves into submission to Christ and his word so that we can be assured that he is our head. He is our authority. And this is our goal as we are growing in health as a church here at Mission Fellowship. Every one of us needs to be submitted to God's word and all discipleship should flow from his word. That way we know that he's the one who is our head. And this is why we have the ministry of the word on Sundays, why we have our discipleship groups that apply what we learn, and then our Bible studies that grow you all as students of the rabbi Jesus, rightly dividing his word of truth. But this is not just something we do today at this one church. You see, friends, we are not better. We are not special. There are many other churches striving for the same goal. And really, this has been the goal of the church since its inception, to develop creedal and confessional statements that unite the church under a common truth that Christ has delivered to his church. 
In doing so, the church has declared a line of truth to which we conform. And rather than having constant debate in the church about settled topics that have become the orthodoxy upon which the Christian church has stood, the church has given us these creedal and confessional statements. Now, we must admit, as Reformers and Protestants, especially on the West Coast, especially in the 21st century, there has been this movement that is good of Bible only because we don't want to be Catholic, right? But the problem is, I think the pendulum has swung far too, too far in the other direction. And so as we have matured and developed as a church at Mission Fellowship, and as we have gotten healthier, we have begun to understand the need for unity with the church across all time and space. No longer is it a badge of honor to say that we are independent. In fact, that's why we pray for other churches, why we are part of the Northwest Church Network, why we are looking at other ways to be connected to other churches that rightly preach the word of God and rightly live it out. But then it's also beyond just our time and space into the history of the church and the Reformed and Baptistic traditions, which, yes, we, aren't, we don't call ourselves a Reformed Baptist church, but this is primarily from which I teach. There are many creeds and confessions that consolidate the truth with which we agree. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, or to be really precise, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. It was reformed at Constantinople. To an extremely large degree, we agree with the Westminster Confession and Standards, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism. And if you're unfamiliar with these, you are probably more familiar with the New City Catechism that we encourage you to use for family worship. Why? Because it was formed out of these confessions. We also largely agree with the New Hampshire Confession of Faith from 1833. And you're thinking, what? We never talk about these. Well, it's part of what we're trying to develop. And these are not statements that we rely on over and above Scripture. No one should, but they're confessions of the historical church that conforms to Scripture. And it calls us to be one with common orthodox faith of Christianity throughout all history. You see, the Reformers weren't people putting forward a new idea. They were ones trying to go back to the old ideas. And so if you're not familiar with any of these, I would encourage you to go and read them. And one of the items on the task list of our elders is to review and adjust our statement of faith. It's been a task list for a while now, uh, and we've had many other things to do, but it's something that is still being worked on. Why do we want to change our statement of faith? Because we want to conform more so with Scripture, more so with these historic confessions, in so much as they conform with a plain reading of Scripture. And that's why we do not holistically call ourselves Presbyterian, siding with many of these confessions. But I would say that I do call myself Reformed because the majority of them side with Scripture. We do this so that we can be assured that we are agreeing in unity with the historic and universal church that has come before us and will last long after us. Friends, what is it called when a person stands up and says, my church is the only right church and I am teaching the only right truth? It's called a cult. And that is not the church. And therefore, it is our effort and our desire to be one with the church historically. The old saying is true. Those that don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And this is true in the church as well. Those that aren't familiar with the his historical and heretical errors of the past will find themselves repeating them. And so we do well to stand amongst the great cloud of witnesses of the past to declare a common confession of faith. How are we doing as a church in this? 
Do we take pride in being independent? Do we look down on historic confessions just because they are old and wrongly understand them to be opposed to Scripture rather than seeing their proper place under Scripture? Do we believe that the Holy Spirit worked within the historic church, or do we believe that he's only working in the here and now, and those, yeah, those confessions didn't have the Holy Spirit at work? Can we maintain love and covenantal unity and faithfulness within our local church while also not raising our church above others as if we are better? Good questions for us here at Mission Fellowship. But then how are we doing as individuals? Do you find yourself being a contrarian for contrarian's sake? Do you find yourself holding to ideas that are odd when compared to historical Christianity, just so you can conform to more contemporary ethics and opinions? As a church, we desire to stand in unity with the commands and doctrine put forth by Christ and his word. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we all do the same. Well, Paul moves next onto the problem which is causing him to appeal to them in this way. He next portrays the disturbing contradiction of a divided body. The disturbing contradiction of a divided body. We see this in verses 11 through 16. Let's read them again. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Now, translations differ on who has come to Paul with a report on the Corinthian church. Some say Chloe's people, as here in the ESV and in the NASB, but others, such as the NIV, say Chloe's household. Some have taken this to mean family members. And this could be true, but the Greek does not give explicit evidence of either. The wooden translation is actually those of Chloe. So all we really know from this text is that she is one that would have been known to the entire church of Corinth. That's why he's using her name. Perhaps she was a leader of some sort inside or outside the church. It has even been proposed that she maybe hosted the church or a part of the church in her home. We do not know for sure. But some of her household, possibly family, but also possibly servants or business associates, they came to Paul in Ephesus where he's writing the letter and they report to him that there is quarreling among the church. Now this is also interesting that Paul mentions this as the means by which he's become aware of the problems of the church. For the rest of the letter will give evidence that Paul is in correspondence with the leaders of the church about other topics. And yet, seemingly, they haven't mentioned this quarreling problem. So the picture painted is one in which perhaps the leaders of the church don't understand or perhaps are unwilling to admit that there is a lack of health among their members, that there is a schism forming in the church. And it's causing great strife. It is true, isn't it, that we often don't understand our own brokenness or the schisms in our own life between us and the Lord until someone outside of us points them out. And this is what was occurring here. Unlike some of the other letters Paul is writing that address sources of conflict that are being imported into the church from those teaching errant theology, Paul notes that the division here is coming from within the church. Twice in these first few verses of our pericope, we see the phrase, among you. The situation that is occurring is that individuals within the church have started to declare allegiance to leaders that are in no way inciting division. 
as if declaring political affiliation with slogans like, I like Ike, or Trump 24, or Biden 24. Members of the body of Christ in Corinth are declaring their tribal identity with statements based on who they follow. Some of you are going to have to go home and take those signs out of your lawn. Much ink has been spent giving reasons why these four names are noted. The first three are simply men of varying position in the early church. Apollos, by far, was the most well-respected among them for his oratory skill, his supposed wisdom. Peter, for his proximity to Christ during his earthly ministry. And perhaps the more spiritual among the body of Corinth were the ones performing a Jesus juke with the statement in response, well, I just follow Christ. But more likely, what is happening here is that the Corinthian church has allowed the surrounding culture of Corinth and the Greek view of wisdom to enter into the church. This is most likely the case because the following verses will discuss this idea of wisdom over and over and over again. 13 of the 15 uses of the word wisdom are in the first two chapters of this book. Paul was fighting against the Sophia of the Greek world, the wisdom of the Greek world. You see, it was normal and even celebrated within the Greek culture to side with a traveling philosopher. These were known as itinerant sophists. You can think of it today as when somebody says that they listen to a particular podcast all the time. In a sense, they have become a follower of that person. We even use that language. Now, these sophists in that day were highly schooled and trained debaters and students of rhetoric. And just as you would follow a sports team today or a podcaster, the people would come and pay to listen to these purveyors of so-called wisdom and then stand on their platform. I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. So shouldn't all the members be saying what the last people say? I follow Christ. Well, Paul seems to be using this last statement in a sarcastic way. Of course you follow Christ. For it was Christ who saved you. And Christ, who is your Lord. This shouldn't even need to be stated. And Paul comes to his point in the next verse. He asks the question, brothers and sisters, is Christ divided? And what is the answer? No, of course not. Those who are truly in Christ are not divided. And this is where the earlier quotes I've pulled from Christ's words in the Gospels apply greatly. What God has joined together in Corinth, this church of elect members of God's family, let no man separate. For a kingdom or even the local expression of that kingdom in God's household present in these members, it cannot stand if it is divided against itself. Paul initiates the use of the imagery he will call on greatly in later chapters as he describes this local gathering of believers as a body made up of many parts or members of the body. Friends, can a healthy, living body be divided? The answer is no. The Greek word here for division is the root word from which we get the word schism. Schismata. What happens when a body is divided? And yes, I want you to think through this with me. It's a horror movie. A person who gets sawn in half, gets divided, is a horror movie. At bare minimum, a schism in the body causes great pain, just as the small fracture in my tibia did during my senior year. But if left unattended, what will happen? The body will be forever harmed. 
And a far greater division will lead to what? Well, potentially death if left unattended. A body divided is a bloody, disturbing vision. In fact, it is a disturbing contradiction because a body that is alive and flourishing, by definition, is whole. It's not divided. It's united. And if divided, it eventually stops being a body and becomes a corpse. And this is where we must get our ecclesiology or theology of the church straight. Paul uses the word body as a symbol of the universal church as a whole. Yes, absolutely. He said so in Ephesians. Christ is the head over the church. But more often, especially here in Corinth, he uses it, this idea of body, to discuss the local expression of the church in a local assembly of believers. So each local church is, in and of itself, Christ's body. It collectively is Christ's reflection in that geographic locale. Believing this does not negate the truth that there is also one collective body of Christ across all time and space. On the surface, then, this gives us great application in a number of ways, doesn't it? First, the local church is to be a family led by fathers in the faith. We must constantly check ourselves to see if we are creating sides within the church because we more naturally agree with one of the leaders or another. Well, I am more in agreement with Michael or with Ryan or Steve or Seth or Hans or Bud or John or Heidi or Pam or the list goes on and on. Or maybe someone says, I like the church better when one of the previous elders was in charge. All of these statements err in that they miss the point of the church. Leaders in the church are simply under-shepherds serving at the request of the great shepherd, constantly pointing to him. We at this church have a plurality of elders explicitly for this reason. So no one leader gets the spotlight but Christ alone. All of the elders join me on stage, even if I'm the one preaching, especially because of this fact. I want you to know that we are your elders not me. Well, but this can also go beyond the local church to leaders in the larger church universal. Some declare by their subconscious allegiances, I am of Piper. I am of MacArthur. I am of Keller. I am of Chuck Smith. I fill in the blank. Or perhaps it is, I'm of Calvin. I'm of Luther. Or maybe I take pride in that I am of no one except me and the Holy Spirit. Ryan once asked us a marvelous question at one of our elder meetings. Do we appeal to individuals outside the Bible as sources of authority or as peers pointing to the common truth of God's word? Well, Piper says, you know. Well, Keller says, you know. Well, at MacArthur's church. We have to be careful of this. Friends, do you follow a pope? They may not have a pointy hat, but you might be revering them as Christ's vicar on earth. Whose opinions are preeminent to you? The word of God or the word of God as interpreted by fill in the blank? 
Now, another application is that this can happen in both a local context and a more universal one, but how about one closer to home? Perhaps you unknowingly follow your grandparent, your parent, your sibling, your spouse, your children. In what ways have you perhaps bent the theology you know is in the Word to accommodate someone you love? Is Christ divided? The answer is no. And so all true believers must spend the entirety of their lives constantly studying so that they can also be constantly reforming to what Scripture declares. All of us, friends, myself especially, must be reforming to Christ's word and not our own. And the historical word of the church as it submits to Christ's word. And this is helpful practical application. But perhaps the intended application of Paul is one level deeper. It wasn't just that they had sided with a leader. It was that the ethos of Corinth, the wisdom of Corinth, that declared one must pick a side of an orator had crept into the church. So perhaps this is a timely truth for us as we embark on yet another election year. I know, it is here again. I'm just as sad as you are. We are to be a people that are of Christ and declare that we will vote based upon the undeniable truth of Christ's word and not aberrant views of Scripture. Things like life, liberty, in order to read the word and gather as his people, these are things we vote upon. For we are not to allow the wisdom of this current world to creep into the church. Nor are we to allow the glorying and diversity of opinion just for diversity's sake to creep into the church. That is what was happening here. They gloried in their division. Too often, contrarians are celebrated as heroes in the church rather than those seeking to sow division. How do we combat all of these issues? We covenant together to seek after the truth of God's decrees and to be unified as we apply them together. So should we ask questions? Absolutely. We should all be straining in order to reform according to God's word. But are we doing it just because. Paul spends the rest of these verses giving an example of how he has attempted to stay out of the fray on this topic, how he has attempted to lower himself so that Christ might be glorified. And to do this, he uses the topic of baptism. Why? Because baptism carries with it innately the ideas we've been talking about, authority, entrance into the church, being a part of the church. It seems that some causing division were using the person who had baptized them to declare a position of alliance and perhaps status in the church. In other words, well, you know who baptized me? So. They were inciting something. They were saying, I was baptized by this person, so you should pay attention to what I have to say. As if to say, I am from the school of Paul, therefore I have greater wisdom and greater spiritual insight than all the rest of you. So Paul combats this idea, declaring clearly that he was not the Savior that provided salvation, nor was he even the one that baptized the majority of them. For Scripture is clear that Christ is the one who saves and therefore baptizes through the medium of the Holy Spirit. What the church does is the church simply acts this truth out in declaration using baptism by water. But it is the church, not any one person or any one leader, that baptizes. Friends, our brother, Tyler, is going to be baptized on the 21st of this month. We will baptize him here, not because he has not already been baptized. In fact, he already has, by the Lord, through the Holy Spirit. And then we, as the body of Christ, 
declare that to the world around us, that the body of Christ has baptized him, that he has died and resurrected with Christ. And it's the authority of the church that does that. No one person that's in our hot tub over here. Scripture is clear that Christ is the one who saves and therefore baptizes through the medium of the Holy Spirit. And this is why we take baptism so seriously at mission and why we structure them the way we do. Most often, I am not the one baptizing. We have elders rotate in that position as representatives of the church as a whole. But it is done in the midst of our liturgy as it is the authority of the church in the name of Jesus Christ that declares the truth that Christ has baptized the individual using his spirit. The church baptizes so no one individual gets the glory or receives the adulation. You see, Christ initiated this practice as he delegated baptism to the apostles of his newly formed church. And Paul followed suit, and so do we. The church baptizes, not a pastor, not a best friend, not a spouse, not a family member, but the church as the body of Christ in the Spirit. And so in the flow of a normal unscripted letter, Paul then thanks God that he had not given fodder to this false idea of aligning with a leader who baptized. But then it speaks to his humanity and the beauty of the fact that this was a letter that was written from the heart because he then remembers that he had baptized a few and speaks it out loud for clarity, thus the parentheses in the English tradition. And I can also say that most likely as a pastor, he wants to make sure that no one will come back and say, but you said... And so he clarifies slightly because the Corinthian church is already somewhat frustrated with him. And so he's trying to gain their good graces here a bit. It is often the case in church history that the leaders, those that are named here, Paul, Apollo, Cephas, Christ, and many others, Calvin, etc. It's often the case in church history that it was the leaders that did not incite conflict and schism, but the followers overzealously did so in the name of the leader. It is understood that none of these leaders wanted their position of fake authority, but Paul least of all. He wants nothing to do with this worldly wisdom. And so he begins to build a new argument that will last for a few chapters. But before I go on from that, friends, there is a reason that this is not called the blank, blank ministries church. Hans Rasmussen or Ryan Johnson or Kelton Hedstrom or even Suplex Zero Ministries Church. That was for you, Kelton. I hope you're watching. We don't call ourselves any of these because no one person deserves the adulation. And notice that there is no sign on our church sign that says, lead pastor, Hans Rasmussen. No, this is Christ's church, and we are Christ's body. And the only reason I fill these gigantic boots that Micah got me are because I got a big mouth, and you guys have asked me to do so, and the Lord has placed me here. But that does not mean anything. We all simply use our gifts in order to glorify Christ. And so Paul finishes this section, states in this last verse, that unity is found in the cross. Unity is found in the cross. How do you combat all of these things that are coming into the church, that are within the church already, among them? How will he call them through the rest of the letter to be unified? Well, he does so because 
unity is found in the cross. He preaches the gospel. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul says something very interestingly, interesting and seemingly contradictory to Scripture here. He says that Christ did not send him to baptize, but immediately something jumps into our mind from Matthew 28, 19. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So he asked, didn't he send all disciples, especially the apostles, to baptize the name of the triune God? But friends, that is not what Paul is speaking to. He is declaring a more personal mission in the context of the argument that he's just presented. It is Christ who has died as the atoning sacrifice, reconciling men and women to the creator God. It is Christ who has baptized the believer through the Holy Spirit, allowing them entry into his kingdom and calling them to himself. It is Christ who receives the glory in every church across all time and space. And friends, if he does not, you know most likely that's a false church. So rather than the sophists, the itinerant wise men traveling the Greek countryside as purveyors of eloquent speech and oratory, Paul has been sent as a simple messenger, a proclaimer of an event. He has been sent as a messenger, a town crier, who is letting all the people in a given dominion know that a new king has been enthroned. Like you and I, he has been sent to declare a king. And this should be great news for us, friends, because I know many times when I talk to people, encouraging them to evangelize and to share the gospel, the immediate response is, I'm not really sure, I, don't, I can't really speak like you, or I don't have theology like you. Friends, notice what he says, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We, like Paul, are sent as those who use plain language, basic words, to declare a historical event that occurred. If you can declare what happened at your child's last birthday party or your roommate's last graduation or whatever it might be, an event of history, you can declare the gospel. You can declare a king. And this king is special, for he is not a king who would align with the wisdom of this age. He would not fit in amongst people who wanted to wrestle for status. No, as we'll see in the ensuing verses, he is a king who operates by the wisdom of heaven. He is a king who gave his life to receive glory, unlike the entitled rulers of this age. And his kingdom is one built on humility and selflessness, sacrifice and submission to God the Father, submission to a greater authority. And this is why the cross, the symbol of the entirety of the gospel, is so very powerful. And it is this symbol to which we cast our eyes to be drawn together in unity. The cross is not a, beauty, a message of beauty or charisma or power or success or victory or any other means by which this world attempts to draw glory. No one in the world wants to align with a leader embarrassed, murdered, humiliated on a cross. The cross is a sign of the opposite of the world. It is the place where the all-powerful, glorified God condescended to man 
so that he might declare his love to a people that were his enemies, that were aligned in rebellion against his reign, and draw them into oneness with the creator God from whom they had been divided. Christ took on the very division that we so naturally bring, but especially the division that was brought in by the fall and was resulting in divided, being divided from God the Father so that we might be made whole in reconciliation with him. The message of the cross, the reason it's powerful, is because Christ united and healed what was divided. And he did so not with the wisdom of the world, but by the wisdom of the kingdom of heaven. And so, is, so Paul is basing his appeal here and for the rest of the letter on this message, the message of the cross. And he is calling the members of the church who have declared that they have been brought into the family of God through this same message. He's appealing to them to agree with it in the way that they relate to one another and the way in which they are behaving within the church. He's appealing to them in their common faith to agree with the truth that the gospel has brought forth, that the body of Christ that is made up of many once divided members has now been made whole because of the blood of Jesus, because the incarnate Christ gave his body upon the cross and resurrected in new life, in a new body, to be enthroned as king over them all. And from that throne has poured out his spirit into his people to be his living, breathing reflection on this earth, his body on this earth. Friends, this is what we all declare when we partake in communion. We declare that we are united in our agreement with the gospel and all that it has brought about. And if we are not in unity... We declare as a church that one should not partake of that communal meal until unity is restored, until we agree again with the gospel through confession and repentance, apology, forgiveness, reconciliation. Thus, baptism and the Lord's Supper go hand in hand at declaring and maintaining unity among the body that we are whole. It is the very place the very table that sinners should come to. For we are not made perfect by our works and then come to the table. No, we come to the table declaring that we are sinners in need of the Savior and agreeing with the gospel to the point where we make amends and we reconcile with those with whom we are in conflict. Brothers and sisters, we all know the gospel. We've all accepted the gospel. For it is how we have been brought into the kingdom of our King and Savior, Jesus. So let us now go forward agreeing with this same truth that is inherent in the gospel, that there is no division amongst the body of Christ. There is only unity in Christ. Perhaps the Lord is speaking this to you for a relationship in the church or a relationship that's extended to the greater church. Maybe it's within your own marriage here within this church. There is no division amongst the body of Christ. There is only unity in Christ. Because he, as our shepherd, has drawn us together in his loving arms and made us one with him and with the Father. 
And so therefore, it is our job to fight for that unity at every turn, even if it is to fight, and especially if it is to fight our own fleshly selves. May the Lord give us strength to listen to the words of Paul here and also, as he wrote in many other letters, this same idea. This is from Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Mission Fellowship, let us be eager in the gospel to declare it not only to those who don't know him yet, but also to one another so that we can boldly agree with the gospel in our unity. And let us be a local expression of God's greater church and let us be individuals that willingly conform to this appeal. Let us be united in our agreement with the gospel so that we might then declare it in unity as the body of Christ to all those that surround us. Amen? Amen.